This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Jolly. This is Politics Without the Boring Bits. And the messages just keep on coming. Unfortunately, all still seem to be about my face. Another review posted on Apple Podcasts. Excellent, insightful, entertaining. Great pod, been listening for years. But yes, the face photo, channeling Uncle Fester. At least I've got a full head of hair. If you want to get in touch about the contents of the podcast, you can email me, matt at times.radio. Coming up on today's episode, the latest edition of the Exit Interviews with dozens of MPs announcing they are standing down. This week, I invite Sir Charles Walker, outgoing Conservative MP for Broxbourne, into my office to ask... Why are you leaving us? A really fascinating, humanising conversation with Charles Walker about why he chose not to pursue a ministerial career, why he regrets being rude to David Cameron, and why he thinks it should be harder to oust an MP with a recall petition. Before that, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on all of this Rwanda nonsense. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, don't forget you can listen to Politics Like the Boring Bits live on Times Radio for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio, weekdays from 10. So much great new telly on the telly over the weekend. So much good telly. I mean, apart from, honestly, they bring back gladiators, and then, oh, Bradley Walsh. Who's decided we need more Bradley? He was on both channels at the same time. So I'm not watching that. So instead, we watch the new series of an audience with. You know, they've done an audience with Kylie, Ken Dodd, Dame Edna Everidge. I was quite surprised, though. I tuned in to catch an audience with Donald Trump. A unique television experience. For the first time, leading personalities from the theatre, television, sport, politics and Fleet Street. And among those present for this glittering occasion are Joanna Lumley. And Stanley Baxter, Shirley Williams, Ned Sherry, Rula Lenska, Nigel Dempster, Lord Longford, Frank Ifield, and... Is that Nigel Farage, by the way? Oh, you stand up, will you? I'm just looking, looking at this handsome, this handsome guy. He's been a backer of mine from day one. I think called Brexit, very non-controversial. And you've been right. They haven't implemented too well, but you've been right. No, we're big fans. Thank you, Nigel. It's really an honor to have you here. Great. You look great. I love these suits. You know, they know how to dress over there. We don't know how to dress like they do. Thank you. Great honor, man. 
Yeah, turns out uh, Nigel Farage is so close to returning to British politics that he's spending the day snowed in in Iowa, hoping that Donald Trump spots him in the audience or some conference room in a Iowa Iowa hotel. So anyway, there we are. Speaking of telly, loads of good telly, loads of good telly. Although I'm not sure about this new political version of the traitors. They didn't really go for each other at the round table. I just wonder, um, Lord Cameron, you were leader of the opposition for a long time. You're now leader of the opposition, Sir Keir. It's often described as the worst job in British politics. It is. Have you got any tips for him, Lord Cameron? Plenty. What might they be? Get a plan. Keir Starmer, anything you'd like to hear from David Cameron that might be helpful to you? Well, that 2010 experience when he went from opposition into government would be interesting to discuss. But we've got a plan, we'd be pleased to know. Yeah, it's not it's not as good as the normal version. I think keep, keep the politicians off, keep the politicians off the traitors. The columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis, and Rachel Sylvester. And we say hello to Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby. Hello. And hello to Rachel Sylvester. Hi, Matt. Oh, I, my heart sinks even having to talk about it, but I suppose we must. The Rwanda bill. It comes back again, another crunch moment for Rishi Sunak as his authority is tested like never before. What will Lay Anderson do? Do you think the rebels will... I mean, there's a fundamental question here. The rebels on the right want to toughen it up. Their amendments won't pass because Labour won't vote for them, so they might get a majority for them. And so do they then vote the whole bill down and therefore cause a massive uh, headache for Rishi Sunak? having accepted the bill is an improvement on the situation right now. So do they make the enemy, no, the good, the best, the enemy of the good? Rachel? I think they probably haven't decided yet um, because this is going to carry on, isn't it, for a bit going through Parliament. But what it seems to me is this is just such a massive diversion you know, from the sort of real issue. So this Rwanda policy, even if it did get through, as I understand it, it would do, get about a thousand migrants over five years to Rwanda. And you've got 30,000 or so coming every year in the small boats and obviously many more migrants through other routes. So it's a, the whole thing, I think, is a sort of massive political diversion. Um, and a bit of me thinks, is the government actually trying to kick up a fuss and sort of kick, you know, make it an argument with the lords and with the judiciary to sort of show, pretend or not pretend, but show they're being tough rhetorically mm. without actually delivering anything? Meanwhile, you've got the actual system for processing asylum claims, you know, in chaos as far as we can see and not processing them fast enough. So the whole thing feels like a sort of, over here, over here, we're having a huge row. Yeah, yeah. While meanwhile, um, in the sort of centre of the reality, nothing's getting sorted. If it, it feels possibly Libby like that, having it a, a sort of distracting row might have been a good idea at the beginning of all of this. But now it feels like Rishi Sunak's got himself so far down this road, maybe he should have listened to Rishi Sunak, who expressed doubts about this policy uh, when he was Chancellor. I think Rachel's right. I think there's a phrase, the narcissism of small differences. You know, it's the Judean People's Front versus the People's Front of Judea. And uh, the the huge thing is, is the backlog. It is the processing of claims. It is making the machinery work, which everyone should be concentrating on. But uh, as you say, if Rishi Sunak had but had the nerve to listen to himself and shout the whole thing down, saying, I'm the prime minister, this is what we are or are not doing, uh, that would... That would would have been pleasant to watch, at least. 
And the trouble is he's got he's the victim of a sort of pincer effect, isn't he? Because he's got the right-wingers kicking up in one direction, but then he's got the sort of moderate one-nation Tories saying, you mustn't go any further in the direction of the right, otherwise we won't yeah. support you. So... The, the problem politically for him is just at the time when the whole political strategy for the Tories is going to be, OK, voters, you want change, but don't let Labour wreck it. Meanwhile, the whole story is in Westminster is Tories infighting yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, having rows about everything the whole time. So they don't look very competent. And uh, all the time, like you said, the boats keep coming. We had the sad news over the weekend of five more people who've, who've died. And... Um, there's no prospect, it seems, of a plane ever taking off to Rwanda, even if this bill goes through. Uh, but if it gets amended, Rwanda have said it goes... It's, you know, we're going to end up in a situation where it's Rwanda who blow up this deal um, if, if Rishi Sunak does give in to, the, to, to those on the right. It is a mess, and I, su- I suppose it's a mess which is going to unfold uh, over the coming week. But, yeah, it's just a, uh, an example of, you know, saying something when you're wanting to be leader and then, you know, Rishi Sunak tethered himself through a random policy. You know, there was probably an opportunity there when he was becoming leader. Um, let's talk about someone else who said one thing when he was wanting to be leader and then uh, it seems to have changed his mind. Keir Starmer, accused of, you, accused of you turning again, this time on his plan to give MPs a vote on uh, the UK taking part in military action. It was the Prevention of Military Action Act, was the way he described it. But now he's supporting the government uh, on the uh, US-UK airstrikes in Yemen. This is back in... January 2020, so when he was running to be leader, Keir Starmer went on the BBC's Andrew Marr programme and said he would introduce legislation that would require the Commons to approve any military action by the UK Armed Forces. I would pass legislation that said military action could be taken if first the lawful case was it, for it was made, um, secondly there was a viable objective and thirdly you got the consent of the Commons. I think that piece of legislation is much needed. Okay. But they would be the tests, and it's obvious from those tests that there might be circumstances in which they could be met. Now, he's supporting the government, and when I spoke to the Shadow Foreign Secretary, David Lammy, he said, oh, we've got an open mind on this. You know, it's, it's maybe you could have a vote after the event. Um, Libby, I suppose there's two questions here. Should, should the Commons have been uh, uh, asked before uh, last week? And more, then more broadly, does it matter that Keir Starmer said one thing to become elected leader and then uh, is now doing something else? Well, what he's saying is, is quite subtle in a way and something which we ought to be practically and philosophically thinking about. Because what he's saying is that airstrikes are sort of not the same thing as putting troops on the ground, which obviously means something much bigger. It means body bags coming home. It means, you know, it gets the, the emotions of the nation going uh, faster. So I think we need to think about this because airstrikes can lead on to full wars. So in many ways, a lot of us would prefer it at least to be discussed in one of our always fractured parliaments, the same way that, that Iraq was. Um, so I think it's it's not so much him, he's flip-flopping, he's making a distinction which we don't talk about enough. You know, are airstrikes kind of sort of not as serious as, um, as troops on the ground? And I think we should think about that because one does often lead to the other. But the last time there was a vote in the Commons on for Syria, in uh, yeah. David Cameron to take action in Syria, that that wasn't for boots on the ground. That was for airstrikes, and it was very odd because David Lammy said, "Oh, David Cameron was embarrassed when the Commons uh, 
uh, voted against him. And, and But David Dammy was one of those people who voted. He seemed to be implying that he shouldn't have been allowed to have that, uh, that vote. What do you think, Rachel? I think the reality is we're getting close to an election where the polls suggest that Keir Starmer could end up being Prime Minister within a few months, sometime this year. So he's thinking realistically now about what it would mean to be Prime Minister. Um, and if you are in alliance with the Americans, we're very much the junior partner in this alliance. And the element of surprise w- is incredibly important when it, particularly when it comes to airstrikes or whatever, actually. But uh, I think that's so. It's the sort of nearing um, government slightly focuses the mind. But I spent um, a couple of days with Starmer last week on his health tour of the Northwest. Uh, and in fact, just after I w- left him, he got called into a sort of had to find a secure line very quickly to have a briefing call about these airstrikes. So I didn't ask him about this specific point, but I did say to him, look, you've changed your mind on lots of things since you were running for the leadership. How can the voters trust you? And you can read the piece in the magazine on Saturday, but he his argument basically was that the principal principles he was putting forward remain pretty similar in his what he calls his missions but there are certain things where the circumstances have changed for example on tuition fees he says um you know his his words speaking politically the um you know he says the tories have made the economy worse so therefore they can't do free tuition fees anymore if they get in but there is this sense that circumstances have changed i think the reality though is what's changing is the realism of what the being in power would mean. I suppose that's the big question, is it? Was was he being authentically Keir Starmer in 2020 and now he's cynically moving to win the election? Was he naive in 2020 and he's now realising that you can't promise the moon on a stick and vote on everything? <laughs> um, or is he being cynical now and now will flip back to Corbyn Easter politics which is what he was offering in 2020 in order to get... You know, there's that, that big question of what is the real Keir Starmer? That is he... Because it was it was such a sort of obvious sop to the Corbyn Easters and the the hard left. If you you just have a vote before ever committing troops, the idea being that the Commons would always vote against it because that's what they did over Syria. And it's just a question of where he, where is the real Keir Starmer? I think you can't say he's a Corbyn Easter. He's obviously not. Yeah. Corbyn's no longer in the Labour Party. Um, so I think the Tories. But is he, are in I suppose the, is he is he more left wing than he's letting on, or was he just pretending to be left wing in order to become? leader and then move to the right, which is what, you know, some of the left think. Um, let's move on, because I want to ask you about the, the merits of being a backbencher. Never mind running for the leadership. What about spending your entire political career on the backbenchers? As part of our latest exit interview, I spoke to uh, Sir Charles Walker, uh, the uh, long-standing Conservative MP. He's been an MP since 2005, I think. And I asked him about why he'd never climbed the ministerial ladder. I, I love Parliament. Governments come and go, but Parliament remains a con constant. And I think I'm a pretty good uh, legislator in the legislature. Patrick McLaughlin, the chief whip in 2009, said, we're thinking we might like to have, this was before we got into government, yeah. but we think we might like to have you in the whip's office. How would you feel about that? And I said, I go away and think about it. And I was miserable for 24 hours. And my wife saw me in the bathroom mirror looking miserable and said, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. <laughs> uh, Libby, what, what do you make of this? Is there something honourable in staying on the back benches? 
I love that. I, in another life, I'd have been a really stroppy backbencher, I think. Um, but And obviously, if you get to any kind of a hung parliament, then they are vital. But, I mean, look at the usefulness. Look at Lord Arbuthnot, who was, as an MP, the main parliamentary moving force, moving mm. on and nagging on in the post office campaign. You know, a backbencher sometimes has the ability to get their teeth into a subject which matters to constituents and matters to people and get a kind of a... A, a, pop, a popular feeling behind them uh, by campaigning well. So I think I think it's an honourable thing, not necessarily to want to rise to the top and be world king like someone else. We know. <laughs> Rachel, I completely agree. And there's now this sort of structure for the backbenchers of being um, head of a uh, select committee, which is mm. a much more senior and respected role mm. now than it was because it's, well, it's um, also better it's paid, better paid, but also <laughs> elected. Yeah. So there's a sense of authority that those select committee chair and chairmen and women have. Um, but also I think you can be, as Libby says, you can be sometimes even more effective from the back benches. So I interviewed Jess Phillips recently, mm. who stood down from the front bench over uh, Keir Starmer's position on Gaza. But she said the work that she's done on um, domestic violence, violence against women and girls, from has been there from the back benches or from the front benches. It doesn't matter. And you can almost be more of a thorn in the side of the government or your own leader, yeah. opposition leader, if you're not in on the front bench and sort of beholden to all of those rules. You can also, I mean, just have a longer career. I mean, it's been only 20 years that Charles Walker's been there. There's been so many other people who've come in, been and gone uh, in that period. You know, the rise to the top and then, they're, you know, already out. Uh, still joined by Libby Powis and Rachel Sylvester. Now, should we have a statue to this guy? Somehow or another... Partly by good luck, but I think by good management, we seem to have suddenly, last few months, got into a position quite different which we've ever had since the war. Somehow or another, we've brought off what I called the other day two doubles. We've had for the first time steady cost of living for 18 months. We don't hear much about the cost of living now, which we heard so much about a few years ago. Well, then the other thing at the same time, we've had full employment. Yeah, that was Howard Macmillan speaking in a party political broadcast way back in 1959. But he was in the ascendancy and nicknamed Supermac. He was a successful Prime Minister, but there is no permanent memorial for him. Well, Lee David Evans, Ramsden fellow at the Mile End Institute, wants to change that. Lee joins us now. Hi, Lee. Hi, Matt. Good to be with you. So why do you think we need a permanent memorial to Howard Macmillan? Well, the idea behind the campaign is basically two simple premises. One, that statues are good, and they're a good way to commemorate some of the greatest Britons that we've had. They help educate people about history. They can boost civic pride. And I also think they're a superb way to highlight people's achievements, including the values and the principles that, that they stood for. So that's the first point, that statues are good. And the second one is that Hal Macmillan is deserving of one. He was one of the most remarkable political lives of the last century in terms of his achievements in office, in terms of his character. And I think he's really quite surprisingly missing from the roster of former prime ministers and politicians who have had statues put up in their honour. Now, uh, Rachel, statues are obviously contentious these days. Um, can you see any issue with putting up a statue to Howard Willow? Well, he's probably one of the least, less controversial prime ministers to honour. My um, argument would be, don't sort of put up a statue to an individual. What matters is what they achieved and what they did with their time in power. So I think the sort of fetishisation of 
individual politicians um, is a mistake. It shouldn't really be about those sort of celebrities, if you like. It should be about the achievements of their governments. So, Lee, if we were going to do his achievements rather than him himself, what would, what, what's a standout achievement that we should be celebrating with Howard Whitman? Well, I think in some ways what makes his life so rich and what makes him so deserving of a statue is, in fact, that it wasn't just a single policy or a single achievement in office. So he served his country in, in the First World War. Throughout the interwar years, he stood with Churchill and the anti-appeasers. He was minister-in-residence in Churchill's wartime government. And then perhaps actually most famously, and it's remarkable that this was not an achievement as foreign secretary, chancellor or prime minister, but as housing minister. He defied the critics and built 300,000 new homes. And that was all per year. And that was all in the early part of his career. So I think it's quite hard to, to pin him down uh, to any particular thing. But of course, when he was prime minister, he helped restore the UK's reputation after the Suez debacle helped keep the peace in the Cold War, and also, I think, did more than almost any other politician to usher in that transition from empire to commonwealth. So whilst I'm not unsympathetic with the idea that we should celebrate achievements more than just the person, I think this person's achievements were so significant and so profound that it's quite hard to single out any single thing that you would highlight, and so best to highlight and champion the man. Um, what do you think of this, Libby? It's, what, 60 years since he stopped being Prime Minister, almost 40 years since he died. So is, is that a long enough period before we start putting up... I mean, clearly there are already statues to Margaret Thatcher, although one of them proved quite controversial <laughs> in her, her constituency. Is long enough enough time passed to put up a statue to, uh, to Macmillan? Probably, yes. I mean, I take all those points, but also I'm a great fan of really good naturalistic sculpture. And I used to have a friend who, he did uh, Julius Reuter, for outside Reuters, said the hardest thing was the sideburns. He said, hair is hell. <laughs> and of course, anyone doing Macmillan is going to have to do some really refined hair, but also a magnificent moustache. So I kind of look forward to it. Though, as Rachel says, in the end, somebody will push it in the Thames, you know, because they'll find something that, some legacy of his they don't like. So I I don't know. Public statues of people are always a problem. <laughs> I mean, perhaps he's, the, the thing he's best known for, people might not even know he's responsible, uh, Lee, is that he was responsible for the night of the long knives reshuffle, which is now the baseline for any reshuffle that follows <laughs> since. Absolutely. That's perhaps his greatest gift to his successors, that he had such a catastrophic reshuffle. And it's pretty difficult for them to match it for disaster. But, it's, um, but you're, you're quite right to to say that statues, of course, haven't quite been in, in fashion in recent years. But the number of statues of politicians is, is growing. And I think that's actually a really good thing. We've had new statues of Stanley Baldwin in the last five years or so in, in Beaudley, a new statue of Margaret Thatcher, like you say, rather more controversially in Grantham. And also just two years ago or so ago, a new statue of Barbara Castle in Blackburn. So we do see this blooming of new statues really all over the country to celebrate the fantastic politicians and the really accomplished politicians of the last century. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, when I was at university, I was at Margaret Thatcher's old college, Somerville College at Oxford, and there was a bust of Margaret Thatcher, but they had to put it behind bulletproof glass because it was so wow. controversial. So I think the, there's a danger with these kind of... I mean, Macmillan isn't as divisive a character as her, but as soon as you personalise it, you have people with strong views yeah, on yeah, all yeah. sides. Where, if you where say, would you put it, Lee? Well, I think there were some really good good options. So, of course, Stockton would be a very good option. He was first MP for Stockton in 1924 yeah. and eventually took the, the name of Stockton when he became an earl in the 80s. But there, there were other options too. He was born in London and after the Second World War represented Bromley. And then there's Sussex, which became his adopted 
home where he ultimately died, and also where at his personal home he hosted people including Charles de Gaulle and, and John F. Kennedy. So all throughout the, the country, you find these places that he had a distinct connection to. And it would be a case of whether or not local people wanted them, whether yeah. or not council would grant us permission for it. But I think there were plenty of viable locations for a statue. Have you, have you looked at it? How much does a statue even cost? Well, it's six figures, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, so it's not the sort of money you'd find down the back of a sofa, but it's <laughs> thankfully towards a, it's towards a lower end of six figures. So I think we'd be lacking in total at around about £150,000 or so for a, a life-size statue. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next is the exit interview with Sir Charles Walker. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. We've already said. Sir Charles Ashley Rupert Walker is leaving us soon. Goodbye. In 1956, he was first elected as Conservative MP for Broxbourne in Hertfordshire in 2005, almost two decades ago. In his exit interview, he explains why he's now quitting Parliament. When you feel yourself starting to lose your temper with your constituents, that's a pretty good indicator that you've had enough. Why he turned down the chance to climb the ministerial ladder. My wife saw me in the bathroom mirror looking miserable and said, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. <laughs> and delivers his verdict on his former boss including Michael Howard. Scary. Boris Johnson. Could have been magnificent. Liz Truss. I don't want to be unkind. And why he wishes he'd been nicer to David Cameron. I was young and foolhardy and a bit too gobby. So, Charles Walker, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question, then. Why are you leaving? Uh, that's a very straightforward question. I've got a very straightforward answer for you, Matt. You need to be wanting to do this job 110% every morning. And really, I only want to do it 95%. And that's not good enough for my constituents. And when you're not leaping out of bed, raring to go, it is time to go. So I made that decision a couple of years ago now that I'd, I'd, I, I, was, I was spent what is that what's taken that five percent off i mean it's going to be a turbulent time in politics over the last yeah. certainly decade yeah what is it that's not that five percent off you um uh, basically it's my patience has worn thin and my stepfather was a member of parliament in the 60s and 70s and he said when you feel yourself starting to lose your temper with your constituents that's a pretty good indicator that you've had enough and I'm, I've become a grumpy middle-aged man. So there was a voice at the back of my head, my stepfather's who's deceased, saying, it's time to go, it's time to go. Well, come on to some, some of what's happened in the, while you've been in the Commons. But let's go right back to the beginning. Yes. I didn't realise this. Back in 2005, to become the candidate in Boxbourne, you beat one Elizabeth Truss. 
I did in the final, yes. Did you look at her then and think she'll one day make a great Prime Minister? Um, I, I didn't. Um, I had a suspicion I was going to win that final because there was also the wonderful Andrea Leadsom in the final as well, so it was the three of us. Wow. But they'd had Dame Marion Rowe for 22 years, um, who was a significant figure in the House of Commons, and I thought they'd probably want something a little different. Um, and they did. They wanted a blonde, um, and she was a blonde, but it was a male blonde, not a female blonde. So it, it wasn't... I mean, I was delighted and thrilled to get it. I took nothing for granted, yeah. but... Um, I thought of all the finals I was in, it was probably the one I had the best chance of winning. And during your time since 2005, coming up for, for two decades, you've been on the back benches. I have. The whole time, unlike Andrew Leadsom and Yes. Justin. Why is that? Well, I, I love Parliament. Governments come and go, but Parliament remains a con constant. And I think I'm a pretty good uh, legislator in the legislature. Um, and I, I just love being a member of Parliament. I've been a select committee chair for 12 years. I'm one of the longest-serving select committee chairs in, in Parliament, and that has been an utter joy. I'm also on the commission of the House of Commons, which is like the board, which oversees all its activities. So, I mean, I, I've had a fantastic 19 years. And so did you, were you ever asked about being a minister? Um, Patrick McLaughlin, the chief whip in 2009, said, we're thinking we might like to have... This was before we got into government. Yeah. We think we might like to have you in the whip's office. How would you feel about that? And I said, I'd go away and think about it. And I was miserable for 24 hours. And my wife saw me in the bathroom mirror looking miserable and said, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. <laughs> so she released me from that. It's interesting. So you... Because lots of people would have grabbed at any opportunity mm. to become minister for paperclips. Do you think you've had... A better time, a more interesting time, more fun, more fulfilling, more effective than, than climbing that greasy pole? I mean, I think one can be modest about one's achievements, and my achievements are modest, but I have been effective when it comes to raising issues um, around mental health. I've campaigned on that throughout my time in Parliament. Uh, I was effective, I think, raising the counter-arguments to lockdown uh, during the COVID-19 lockdowns, particularly coming from a sort of mental health perspective and the impact it would have on people who were already struggling. So it's given me a lot of freedom to, to operate in the way that I, I want to operate. Would I like to have been a minister? I think I'm a much better member of Parliament now, weirdly, than than I was when I started, much more grown up. I'd love to have been leader of the House of Commons, obviously because I love, love yeah. the House of Commons, but that wasn't to be. Uh, but I've had a really super time, a really super time. I was vice chairman of the 1922 committee for 12 years, yeah. which I greatly enjoyed. And um, I've been, uh, there's no regrets at all about what I've done and the path I've chosen, because I've done it well. I think whatever you choose, you've got to do it to the best of your ability. You, you say you've had a super time. There was a time, and you were particularly talking about when you first arrived in the parliament, first year and a half, I think you described it as being absolutely appalling. And you, you, you've talked as well about having OCD, obsessive compulsive mm. disorder, and the impact that had on you. And actually at a time, people forget this now, go back to 2005, people didn't talk about their mental health mm. or their, their, if they were struggling to cope. I mean, it was such a massive change of environment. Um, so it sort of uh, exaggerated all my sort of OCD, all my counting mm. and whatever goes along with it. Um, so it was a very difficult two years. Um, I wouldn't say it was the happiest two years of my life, but it was two years I needed to get through. And I did get through it, uh, but it, it shaped the way I approached my career very much so. Just explain how the OCD 
manifest itself with you? This counts to four. Well, no, no. I mean, I count. I, I count. I, I wash my hands a lot. So, I mean, when we had COVID, I don't want to make light of it. When we were told to wash our hands a lot, you it was, well, I was you, already you there. there. You were already there. Um, so, so no. I, 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 it's turning lights, which is walking in and out of rooms, trying to find balance a lot. You know, it's 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 mild most of the time, but but when you, I think, when you're under pressure and stress, and it's a completely new environment, and your natural rhythm and order is broken, then it sort of and comes par- bubbling to the fore. Parliament's a weird place. It is a weird place, but it's it's because I do suffer from mild OCD. It's why I sort of had great empathy and concern for those whose support networks were being taken away from them during the lockdowns. Mm. And if you're dealing with a mental health problem, you're dealing with anorexia or anxiety, when you don't have your support networks around, those things can come rushing back. And you might think they're under control, but then, of course, they get the upper hand. In fact, talking about the, the lockdowns, you gave a speech in the Commons in 2000, uh, 2021 when you talked about carrying a pint of milk around London because mm. that pint will represent <clears throat> my protest. And that pint shall remind me, that pint shall remind me that the act of protest is a freedom a freedom, Madam Deputy Speaker, not a right. And unless you cherish freedoms every day, unless you fight for freedoms every day, they end up being taken away from you. What was mm. that all about? Because it was, it was a serious point you were talking so, about. So if you... I mean, it was amazing, isn't it? Because the speech was like Marmite. But, but the level of hostility that it generated was extraordinary because I was talking about people who were struggling... Mm. If you read the speech, it was people with anorexia. It was people with a mental health problem. It was all the people that had been forgotten, that had had, that had, their people struggling, that had had their support network stripped away. And um, most of our life by then was regimented by what we could and couldn't do, and you couldn't go out and protest. And protest is a great safety valve. It allows people to get things off their chest. And when that was taken away, I think people felt very, very vulnerable. And so the pint of milk, I knew it would get a lot of coverage, so I just, it could have been anything, it could have been half a pint of cream, yeah. but I knew people would focus on the milk, but that would, that would, would get the speech coverage. Um, and do you know what, Matt, I'm happy to say that in my ninth, I love speaking in the chamber, I've won two Spectator Speech of the Year awards, um, I've always searched for the perfect speech. And the perfect speech doesn't have an um or an R in it, it doesn't have a stumble, uh, and that was my perfect speech. That was my Picasso moment. So to all those people who hated it, well, it initiated some emotional response, and to all those people who loved it, well, that was great. But for me personally, um, that was the best you, speech I've ever given in the House of Commons. And when you talk about having your support network, how did you find it? Because being an MP, you know, there's a lot of time in London, it's weird hours, you're away from home. Being away, you've got a wife and three children. Mm. How did that affect you and affect them the, the life of being an MP so so I mean it's I was really lucky because yes I, I, I because everybody did it I had a place in London mm. for the first two and a half years I was a member of parliament and um, I got rid of it, but that didn't spare me the expenses. Backlash, as you know, I only live in Broxbourne, but getting rid of it was fantastic. I'm so lucky I can go home every night I really can. And I can see my children and my family. I'm in a safe seat. So I didn't have that constant pressure of worrying about losing my job. And my experience is totally different to that of someone who's in a marginal seat every general election, wondering whether they're going to hold their seat or not. Um, And I have huge um, admiration for people 
um, holding on and fighting marginal seats because their experience is entirely different to mine as a member of parliament. But I was very lucky to go home at night. I wouldn't have lasted in a marginal seat. I'd have done five years and then imploded or <laughs> exploded. Would you advise one of your children to go into politics? You, it's not for fathers to advise on that or parents. They've really got to want to do it. So I wouldn't dissuade them from doing it. But politics is a vocation. It's not a career. It is, and it should be a vocation, particularly elected politics to our parliament. Um, so if they really wanted to do it, then they would have my 100% support. But um, it's for them to decide it's yeah. something that they want to do. Just before we move on and talk about some of the specifics of what's happened in the last few years, you talked about the best speech. Mm. You, you, we think, own, hold the record for the shortest parliamentary yeah. speech. If not now... When? Totally unoriginal as well. <laughs> if not you, who? Actually, I didn't realise at the time. Yeah. If not now, when? This is Which made... was due with the, with, with the referendum. The referendum, where, you whether, there should where, be a referendum. Where we were, were going to have it yeah. or not, was, that, was it going to happen? And um, Yeah, that, I think that's the shortest speech in Parliament, probably one of the worst as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, there'll definitely be worse. There'll definitely be worse. Saved by its brevity. And in terms of the Brexit, um, everything that unfolded with Brexit, there was a time when... Is Charles Walker on TV was a sort of barometer of how bad things were getting. The, the sort of the mood of particularly Conservative MPs, but MPs in general. It was a miserable time. It was late night votes. There was frustrations. There were protests yeah. and all that. And quite often you'd be the sort of the canary in the mine who went on TV and sort of said what everyone was thinking. Was that a deliberate thing? Did it become a burden? Because there were times when you'd get quite emotional in interviews. So, I was vice chairman of the 1922, and, and I had more latitude to do that than the chair, Sir mm. Graham Brady, obviously. Um, and I, I made no secret of the fact I was a huge supporter of Theresa May. I admire her greatly. I think her commitment to public service is extraordinary and, and, and something that... Um, I personally celebrated. And I, I hated to see the way she was being treated. I hated to see the way the party was pulling itself apart, um, which is why occasionally I took to the airwaves. I have to say it made absolutely no difference whatsoever. Um, it very rarely does, taking to the airwaves, make any difference when, when we're asked to go and go on air and tell our colleagues to pull themselves together. I mean, the idea that any colleague listens to me is, is, is ridiculous, <laughs> or anybody else for that matter. Uh, did you get any sort of public reaction to at times getting emotional and being quite honest about how, how miserable things were? Um, no, not really. Um, I mean, I supported all of Theresa May's Brexit deals. Um, I was at times amazed at the duplicity of my colleagues. Um, I thought the Labour Party's position was extraordinary. I think Keir Starmer, who I admire greatly, I have a lot of time for Sir Keir, um, but his five key tests, you can't have five key tests in politics. You can have three, one or two, but when you get to five, nobody knows what the hell they are. I suppose it gives you latitude to change them. But it was, it was a very, very bad time for Parliament, I think, between 17 and 19. I think we played too many games. And how bad did that get for you personally? I mean, far, you know, I like to be busy. Um, yeah, I, I've been around for a long time. And, and, and actually, it was nice for Parliament. Uh, it, it, sorry, it was nice in a sense, if there was anything nice about it, because if there was any plus side, it focused attention on Parliament. Does that make sense? Yeah. And since I'd um, always been comfortable in the chamber... Uh, it was sort of natural territory. Yeah. Obviously, the debates were unpleasant. The situation was unpleasant. But it was a place where I was comfortable, basically, making my arguments and was, was, in, was in the chamber. I was also chairman of the procedure committee at the time. Yeah. 
And so and again, that knowledge of how things work is so important well, at that was, moment. I mean, it was amazing because yeah. procedure is normally a political backwater and it became the sort of main stem of the yeah. river where people like to go whitewater raftings. Yeah. And um, it was fascinating. And I just want to say now, I work with some amazing clerks of the House of Commons who, as you know, Matt, are entirely neutral in yeah. the advice they give. But, you know, I saw the House of Commons at its very best as well, at times at its worst. Do you think, and I know you supported him originally, but did, did John Burko overstretch during that period in terms of his interpretation of some of the rules? I, I yeah. I mean, I, I did write a letter to John that I thought was very moderate and modest, but one of the clerks said no speaker would have received a letter like that from the chairman of a procedure committee in the past 500 years, whatever it was. Um, I, I, I am enormously fond of John. I, he's a complex character, um, but I have to be honest, in the last six months of that parliament, we didn't speak. I, I thought, and I, he, he, he overreached, um, but that doesn't mean I'm not still fond of him. Uh, you don't have many friends in politics, and we can all upset and get upset at people, and people can make us angry. But actually, one of the things I've learned over the past 19 years is don't bear a grudge and be able to forgive people. That was, that was amazing, because you were the only Tory MP who backed him to be Speaker. Originally. Yeah, I led him to the chair in 2000 and whenever it was, wasn't it? It was just after 2009. And there was this barrage of, of I won't hate's too strong a word, a barrage of disapproval coming down on my head from my own benches. Because, because it got very political. Yeah, yeah, MP very supported politi- a yeah, yeah. conservative MP yeah, to be Speaker. Yeah. That, you were the only Tory that did. I think, and... And, and he, um, lo- he lost you in the end. No, no, I mean, I never, I never, I just, you know, I just... You told him what you thought. Yeah, I I probably didn't, actually. Um, um, Julian Lewis was a great friend of his, so Julian supported him, Julian Lewis, the MP for New Forest. But I remember dropping him off at the chair, and as I walked out of the chamber, my wife called me and said, oh, I've just seen you dropping the speaker off at the chair, what are you doing now? And my response was, getting the hell out of here. (laughs) I literally dropped him and just kept going to the tube station (laughs) to get the hell out of Parliament. Wow. But I am very fond of him, you know, whatever our disagreements, um, I've known him for a long time. Have you spoken to him since? Yes. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah, but it was just that period. Yeah, it was just yeah, that yeah, period. Yeah. We can all fall out at times. Yeah. yeah, politics is like that. Well, politics is like that. We've had to sort of romp through the, the ups and downs of the last few years, Charles. As part of your exit interview, I want to just get your take on some of your the bosses that you've had over the years. Sum up for me in a word or, or maybe a phrase, Michael Howard, the Tory leader when you came in in 2005. Scary. Scary. I was new. He was been around a long time. I was, yeah, pretty pretty respectful of him. Do you mean scary in the something of the night about him? As Adam yeah, he just, said, he was, just... you know, I was thirty seven. Yeah. I'd been in watching politics since I was young, and he'd been a significant figure in the Conservative Party for a long time. And um, I had a lot of respect for him. You know, you didn't want... Michael Hadd was not a man I wanted to cross. I mean, he, you know, he, he's a big political figure. Yeah. And all of a sudden, um, you're, you're there. Really strange. Uh, and then he's replaced by David Cameron. Less scary? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I wish I'd been... Um, I wish I'd been nicer to David Cameron. I was, I was young and foolhardy and uh, a bit too gobby. And that's, I, I love to go back age 56 to my young self and say, grow up. You know, being prime minister or being leader of the opposition as he was then is a really tough job and you've got to make some really difficult decisions. And um, I th- my political immaturity showed while he was, was, was um, leader of the opposition and that immaturity to some extent continued into um, his time. 
as prime minister. And what is that? Is that the the as a backbench MP? You get a taste for people like phoning you up. Oh, Charles, I'll have yeah, a go at this. Was it? Were you? Were you being publicly difficult or privately yeah, I was difficult? Publicly, I'm probably, it wasn't. It was just. I was just impetuous and being Charles. I mean, it's. It's. <laughs> yeah. You've got to have to be really successful in politics. You've got to have a two second pause between what occurs in your brain and what comes out of your mouth. And I was born with a one and a half second pause, <laughs> and that is deadly. But um, did he bear a grudge? No. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm very. I, I admire him, and I'm. Um, I'm very, I'm allowed to say I'm, I'm fond of David Cameron. I mean, he might just remember who I am, but um, <laughs> I wish I'd been a better backbencher for David Cameron. Interesting, interesting. You, you touched on Theresa May, but sum up, sum up Theresa May in a word. Committed. Um, no, let me tell you, honourable. I thought, I just, I love her approach to public service. I really do. Um... She's just so motivated by by other people, I think, by doing right. And, and, you know, people can disagree with that and argue about that, but I just think she's a thoroughly decent human being. She embodies the best of public service, in my view. Do you think life would have been easier for her if more people around her and in her party had the same ethic? Oh, that's that's difficult to say. I, 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 I think we... I think people miss her when she went. Does that make sense? I think during the pandemic, although Boris Johnson got many things right, perhaps Theresa would have been more suited for that, the, dealing with the pandemic, and Boris better suited for the 2016 post-Brexit. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but if, I, if only he'd stayed in Michael Gove and all that hadn't happened in 2016, history might have been, history might have been different then. Um, sum up Boris Johnson then in a word. I can't. <laughs> I can give you three words, could have been, four words, could have been magnificent. Boris Johnson's great skill is he's one of the few politicians that prefers talking about you, the person he's talking to, than himself. And that is a political superpower. And I don't know whether it's his shy, whether he's shy or whether it's, it's, a, it's a technique of diversion. I don't care what yeah. it is. It is extraordinary that when Boris me, m- met a, a member of parliament... Um, in all cases when his Prime Minister was his junior, he would show great interest in that Member of Parliament and the way he connected with the public. He had political superpowers and he sort of blew himself up, which I think is a great shame. But that ability to show interest in other people is an extraordinary political superpower and very, very few have it. What went wrong then? I think... Look, I don't know, and he would sit there and say, Charles, you're talking rubbish, but um, it was this... I think you can't live in a culture of chaos when you're in number 10. I think the environment was chaotic. I think some of the people around him were just not up to it, wanted to get more out of him than they were willing to give him. When you serve a prime minister, you should be wanting to give 110% of yourself to that prime minister and expect very little back. Does that make sense? It's your chance to serve... Um, and I think he had he made some really pretty poor hiring decisions, I think. But ultimately, he has to bear responsibility yeah, he for, made them. for what happened. But he did have a political superpower. It was an extraordinary superpower. Of all the politicians I've worked with, his superpower was probably the greatest. Um, <laughs> to move from having a political superpower to Liz Truss feels unkind, but um, sum up Liz Truss in a word. I don't want to be unkind because she, she was Prime Minister... And she lost her job. I mean, I said it at the time. Um, I was interviewed by the BBC and said what I thought 
pretty much the night before she resigned that that it was a administration that was selling the country short. Um, you can't you can't behave like that. You just can't when you're in government. Um, the instincts may well be right. Actually, absolutely right. Everybody, I can't, outside the Greens, I can't think of a single politician who wants to shrink an economy. Yeah. Um, but you've got to understand that when you're Prime Minister of the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world, you have to, um, what is it, roll the pitch? Mm. And there was no pitch rolling. Um, you backed Penny Morton in that race. I did. Do you think she'd have been better? I do. That's why I backed her. <laughs> do you wish she was Prime Minister now? I love Rishi Sunak. In fact, it's it's a mark of Rishi Sunak's generosity. Is it was very. I'm very fond of them both, and I took him aside during that first leadership contest when Liz was in it, and I said, "Look, Rishi, you know I love you. I'm also very fond of Penny, and I'm voting Penny. Um, but but I would do anything for you if it goes the other way." And he said, "Charles, of course I'd like to have you vote for me, but you've been nothing but kind to me since I got here, and I entirely understand." And I thought that was a really kind and generous. Um, thing for him to do. Not it wasn't that kind of generous when David Cameron was going for, for 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 leader of the Conservative Party. I remember having a fairly frank chat with George Osborne, someone I admire and may, uh, extraordinarily, but he was a master of the dark arts, George. And I was pretty much told. So this is the leadership race in yeah, five. five get, new MP. Yeah, yeah, get get in line if you if you want to get anywhere. Was pretty much the message. And you know. Politics at time is hardball, but it was an entirely different conversation with Rishi, and I admire him greatly. I think he makes a great prime minister, and we're luck- we're very lucky to have. So, him. go on then, Rishi Sunak in a word. Diligent, diligent. The man has an incredible work ethic. I went to. He very kindly invited me to check as a few of us, and we got there at seven. 15, I think, and I said to my wife, "It'll be diplomatic rules. We'll be out by nine thirty. And actually, he didn't. We didn't leave till 11.15. Um, and he'd been up since 1.30 working on some foreign emerging crisis in the morning. And I thought, this guy's extraordinary. And not once did he look at his watch or anything. He made us feel welcome and special and there was no pressure to leave. And in the end, we got up and left because we thought, this, this guy needs some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, how bad are things for him now, though, uh, as we head into 2024? Um Still behind in the polls, one out of his five pledges met. Uh, you know, rebellions, by-elections. You, you don't need to be much of a student of history yeah. to say it feels 1997-ish. So I think there is a way forward. I think it's 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 a very narrow route. Um, I'm slightly more positive post-Christmas than I was pre-Christmas. Um, I think that there is room to reduce taxes on people and I think there'll be a series of, of, of is it fiscal events, yeah. I think? So uh, this month there's a cut in national insurance. There will be further tax cuts in March. Now, of course, those won't be felt in people's pay packets till April the 30th. So it's very unlikely there's going to be an election on May the 2nd because yeah. people won't have noticed that. I think there'll be another fiscal event in September and I suspect... I could be entirely wrong on this because I'm wrong on most things, that a general election will be called from our conference in October and it will take place It's either November the 14th, 21st or 28th. There was a period, I'm just trying to think when it was, when I've spoken to you before, and you talked about how actually you didn't think there was a way back for the party mm. and actually the responsibility on the Conservatives was to get the country in the yeah. best shape possible. Yeah. 
before handing yeah, over Yeah, which is to. what he's doing. Yeah. And funnily enough, that has perhaps created the only route towards um, returning a Conservative government. But do you think, I mean, what are his chances? Is he still ultimately getting things in order before the Labour government? We can all read opinion polls. Yes. But um, there is always a chance, and there really is. And as I say, what he's got on his side is he's got time. He's got the best part of a year. He is incredibly focused. He's he's spent the past year, past 15 months, getting the country's finances back in order. So he has created some room. And I think at last my colleagues, my more robustious colleagues, are beginning, the penny's beginning to drop on that score. That, you know, shape up or ship out, basically. So we either stand and back him or we don't. And then, of course, the die is cast if we don't. That doesn't mean there won't be, you know, potholes along the way and bumps in the road, obviously, with Chris Kidmore announcing he's going. But um, Let's turn our attention to some of the... Um Traditional exit interviews you get in yeah. uh, when, when leaving a company. Do you think we equipped you properly to handle your job? Do you think that we give MPs what they need to do their job and you are able to do your job effectively? Uh, uh, it could always be better, but actually you should be electing grown-ups to Parliament. Uh, we should be able to work it out ourselves. I think there needs to be more support, obviously, at the point of arrival because it can literally mm. be overwhelming. You have no computer no office, no staff, and the first thing they do when you're handed your envelope when you've won your seat on the Thursday night, Friday morning, is they immediately give you an email account. So by the time you arrive in <laughs> Parliament on the follow- that Friday or Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you've got thousands of emails. So there is more support to be done around that. But things have improved dramatically since I got there. There's much better support around learning how the procedures of the House work. Um, there's much more focus on integrating new members. So I think things are much better. What about pay? In the past, you've argued for pay yeah, never, for MP. I'll never turn a pay rise down. Um, <laughs> Do you ever. think we should pay MPs more? Um, I think there is... There, I think... Can I... I would like to be paid more. I, anybody, if they were honest, would like to be paid yeah. more. But I think if you want better MPs, more roundly, you've got to treat MPs better. Um, and I just don't think we're attracting... Um, the quality of people that we've attracted in the past. That's not to say we don't get a few really good people, but the world's changed in the past 14, 50 years. You can make your mark in media much more easily. You can make your mark in pharmaceuticals. Where there's the, yeah. the world's a bigger place for talented people to go out into. You know, 40 or 50 years ago, serving in your parliament was like the pinnacle, but now you can make your contribution in so many other areas. And I think... We want a parliament that competes for the best talent because in the, at the end of the day, that's in everybody's interests yeah. and we're not doing that at the moment and that we need to work out how, how we get better at getting bright and talented people in. and that's not just around pay. But you, MPs get what, 80, 86,000 yeah. at the moment. What, what's the right? I mean, you, it, I'm asking you this knowing that you're, you're yeah. not asking for pay yourself because you're standing down. But if yeah. after the next election, what should we be paying MPs? I, I don't think it's, again, Matt, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to be evasive on this because <laughs> I, I, it's because I don't want to create a headline. So one of the things I've done as chair of the um, administration committee, because I came on your show to talk about it, is introduced um, vocational accredited qualifications. There's a pilot going on. They'll be introduced in, in the next parliament. Also, um, outplacement support. So when you leave, you've got a chance of getting another job. Um, I think being in politics should be a vocation, not a career. 
And to make it an attractive vocation, there has to be a life after yeah. politics. So it's not about the money you're earning, albeit important at the time. It's about where will this take me? Because right now, most colleagues, even those that have served in fairly high levels of government, face a career cliff edge when, when, when they leave. And I think that is, that is a real um, problem when it comes to attracting bright people in in their 30s and 40s from successful careers, be that in teaching, accountancy, law, saying, why the hell do I want to do yeah. this? Because it's actually going to set me back when I leave. Yeah. Um, and I think we've got to address that cliff edge. What did you dislike most about the job? Is there anything you really won't oh, I've, miss? I've, you know, I thought a lot about this. I, um, your producer, Keir, kindly sent me <laughs> the questions in advance. What I really didn't like was sitting on the um, standards committee. I did it for 15 months, 18 months. Uh, the standards committee, as you know, sits in judgment of um, colleagues and members of parliament. I found that very difficult. Because it's it's being judge and jury on colleagues. Yeah, and I think um, I mean I'm I quite a reflective person. I think there's a ten and ten rule now. As you know, it's ten days suspension or more. You, you're subject to a recall, and it requires ten percent of your constituents mm. to ask for that recall. Um, I think it should be twenty twenty. To be honest, I think you know most people think ten days is not a long time to be suspended for which is why we tend to come up with suspensions that are 10 days or longer. And, but it is catastrophic for a Member of Parliament because with one notable exception in Northern Ireland, once you're subject to recall, it is not difficult for motiva motivated opposition political parties to rustle up 10% of your constituents. So I'd raise the thresholds to 2020, um, having looked at it very closely. And I'd also, I'm not sure um, that um, lay members of the Standards Committee add much to the process. I think it should be members of parliament um, on that committee. People will say, oh, that's just you more marking your own homework. I know, they'll say each that. And I will say, I was also on the privileges committee that um, investigated Boris Johnson and the number 10 goings on. That was made up of entirely of members of parliament. And we came up with a 40-day suspension, which is longer than any suspension the standard committee has come up with. So we are more than capable of making difficult decisions I think because it's all around elected office and recall and by-elections, look, what I think is probably not going to happen, but I'm trying to be That's reflective. Saying, yeah, yeah. I serve that. I'm not, I'm not convinced. Somebody could make a good argument, but I haven't heard an argument yet that makes me feel that lay members add to yeah. the process. Um, you mentioned the, the, your role on the Privileges Committee. Have you spoken to Boris Johnson since you I haven't. End, his, end his political career? I haven't. I haven't. Um, it was very difficult, um, very, very difficult for him. Very, very difficult for him. Um, he has so many upsides. Um, unfortunately, he has a few downsides. But I think what was most distressing about that was because his outriders didn't like the process, they tried to undermine it. And if you undermine the institution of parliament, you get into dangerous territory and I think, in a sense, that just exampled how he had allowed himself to be captured by not some, by some not very, very good people. And some not very nice people. I mean, did you get sort of, I've spoken to other people involved in that process, abuse, even, you know, death threats and, and that sort of stuff. Did you... Not so much. I mean, I'm quite robust. Hmm. I mean, people think my good nature is a sign of weakness. It's not. And... Um, um, I, I'm quite robust. Um, 
and I think I'm quite fair and sensible, but I do feel for Boris Johnson. Um, I really do. He made some very, very poor hiring decisions. And the motivation of too many of the people around him was always to attack and undermine and diminish. And I think that was a mistake. And I think he might, in his private moments, think it was a mistake as well. Uh, finally then, in your exit interview, Charles Walker, what will you do next? Oh, wow, that's, this is... So, uh, I'm still fascinated by people. I mean, I love people. You can't do this job for 19 years without loving people. So, I would, I would really like to um, work for a headhunting company, uh, particularly one perhaps that looks for people to work in public sector environments, NGO environments. Um, I learned a great lesson from sitting on the commission um, and being involved in recruitment processes, and that is if you've only got one appointable candidate, go out and recruit again. You do always need a minimum of two really good appointable candidates. Well, when was that? Who did you appoint? Oh, with? no, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> but, but you know, but you do need... Look, the, the problem is, is finding really good people to do, to do jobs. Um, and we've got to find the best people. And I've got a pretty good idea, having worked with lots of people, what makes a really good person to work in a sort of quasi-governmental quango role. I know people hate quangos, but they're going to exist. Mm. We'd better find the best people to do it. Normally people who don't really want to do it and have to be persuaded to do it are the best people. So I'd love to work with a headhunting organisation. As I said, I've been chair of a select committee for 12 years, so I've worked across all the various political parties. I'm chairman of an amazing charity called the Country Food Trust that provides um, high-protein meals to food banks and, and kitchens that, that, that feed people. I'm a trustee of an amazing mental health charity called the Chimo Trust that, that funds, is a funder of, of amazing charities that help young people with mental health difficulties. So I'm not short of things yeah. to do, but I would actually like to find something when I leave that pays me. <laughs> we all, that's, that, I mean, that's basically what we all worry about um, in <laughs> yeah. the end. If you, if you were hiring for a big sort of public service, public sector job, you know, serving the entire country... Would you hire Keir Starmer to be Prime Minister? Look, I really like Keir Starmer. I've always got on with him. We had an amazing bust-up in the House of Commons over Brexit. I was feeling um, pretty miserable, and he was at a very low point in his life with, with an illness within his family, and we both wrote each other. I wrote it. I ruined my Christmas, because I'm not normally like that. And I wrote him a letter saying, I'm so sorry that I was such an unpleasant human being. Um, and it ruined my Christmas. He wrote me a lovely letter back. So at a, at a political level, we have our disagreements, but as a human being, I think he's a really top-class man, and I think our Prime Minister's top-class, and I'm just really lucky to serve with some really, really good people. Well, the whole point of this series is to is to shine a light on the, hum the fact that politicians are human too. So, Charles Walker, uh, thank you so much for thank joining you. us for your exit interview. Thank you, man. I don't want to see the girl, but darling, you you can listen to all the other exit interviews that we've done we've done seven or eight so far just search for the exit interviews wherever you're listening to this don't forget you can get in touch by emailing me matt at times.radio or post comments about my face on the apple podcasts app but for now for me matt Jolly, it's goodbye This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.